So my paper today is on uh, Veronique Tajo's book. Um, I don't quite know what to call it. It's part travelogue, part fiction, uh, part all sorts, series of fragments. Uh, the Shadow of Imana uh, Travels to the Heart of Rwanda, which is originally published in French as, forgive my French, L'Ombre d'Imana, uh, Voyage Jusqu'au Bout. Um, sorry, L'Ombre d'Imana, Voyage Jusqu'au Bout um, de Rwanda, I guess. Um, the role of literature in concretizing memory after mass political violence is well known. Veronique Tadjo's The Shadow of Imana Travels in the Heart of Rwanda undertakes a quest to memorialize the victims and atrocities of the Rwandan genocide of 1994. However, as her narrative proceeds, Tadjo increasingly encounters the instability of received legal and historical categories. Acts of literary memorialization, Tajo suggests, are ultimately impossible, given the complexities and ambivalences one encounters when, when attempting to recover historical truth. Concomitantly, the shadow of Imana destabilizes its own generic categories, moving between travel narrative, short story, folktale, memoir, uh, eyewitness account, historical documentary, among others. The basic structure of the book is that there are two uh, kind of long sections beginning and end called the first journey and the second journey, which kind of bookend the book. And those seem to be kind of travelogue uh, accounts, what she's heard, where she's gone. She loses her luggage on the way to uh, Kigali, so we get an, an account of that. And then in the middle of the book, there are four chapters that um, seem to be fiction, um, sort of short stories um, that, that kind of um, intervene between the two journeys. And the long, long sections, the travelogue sections, are made up of a series of fragments or vignettes. And, and those take their titles either from the place she uh, happens to be visiting, like Interama Church, Nyamata Church, Kigali, Sabina Flight 565, um, or they take their names from either the names or the occupations of the people that she happens to be speaking to or writing about. So the lawyer from Kigali, the pastor, the project manager, uh, and, and so we go, Tonya Locatelli, one of the victims of the genocide. So it's structurally quite complex and, and also fragmented as a read. You, you move through a series of kind of um, fragments as you, as you move through the book. So collectively, these vignettes produce a mosaic or a series of fragments that stage vis Tajo's visits to place and her encounters with noteworthy individuals. While the book relies upon the myth of travel and the discovery of story, the transitional role of fiction in the middle of the book means that Tajo is doing something quite different with travel narrative. Encounter stages story, which it seems stages transitional consciousness um, in her second journey. So The Shadow of Imana was produced as a commissioned text um, as part of the uh, Rwanda Writing as a Duty to Memory project um, under the auspices of the Fest Africa Festival in 1998. And as she introduces the book, what's interesting to me is that she seems to um, start out with some kind of self-reversing statements as if she's not quite at ease with uh, beginning to start to say something uh, about Rwanda. And I've put this on your handout, it's, it's number one. She writes, it had long been my dream to go to Rwanda. No, dream is not the right word. I'd long felt a need to exorcise Rwanda. I was starting from a particular premise what had happened there concerned us all. It was not just one nation lost in the dark heart of Africa, 
that was affected, to forget Rwanda after the sound and the fury was like being blind in one eye. Voiceless, handicapped, it was to walk in darkness, feeling your way with outstretched arms to avoid colliding with the future. Of course, I did not consciously think this. I just wanted to go to Rwanda because I needed to. So we have a compulsion to visit Rwanda that is initially because of a dream, then later because of a need to exorcise uh, the events of the genocide, and then finally simply an unspecified need. I just needed to go, uh, she writes. So the organizing voice in this introductory passage is self-revising, almost self-reversing. Um, it starts out by saying something, then sort of undercuts its, the authority of its claims as we proceed. So the introduction qualifies any claim to an immediate relationship um, between writer and, and the Rwandan context that she's entering into and that she's, she's seeking to describe and to write about. The relationship that Tadjo does assert more strongly in the introduction is an explicitly literary one. The Dark Heart of Africa's, I've always found that very, very uncomfortable to read uh, because of course it evokes uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness, one of the most uh, difficult of texts to, to evoke in relation to, to Africa as a kind of representative um, of, of that space. Um, the Sound and the Fury, of course, evokes uh, Macbeth um, and, and his soliloquy as uh, forces are advancing upon him uh, towards the end of the play. Likewise, Tadjo's original French subtitle, Voyage jusqu'au bout de Rwanda, evokes Louis Ferdinand Céline's uh, Voyage au bout de la nuit, Journey to the End of the Night. So that matrix of literary illusion suggests that Tadjo's obligations are as strongly literary as they are humanitarian. But these intertexts, I think, invite um, some quite cautious questioning. How do we reconcile the project of writing as a duty to memory when what is remembered in this introduction is Conrad's atrociously genocidal Kurtz in Heart of Darkness, who famously says, exterminate the brutes, um, with Shakespeare's murderer Macbeth, who discounts the importance of life um, just as justice for his own crimes is arriving on his doorstep. He says, life is full of sound and fury, uh, signifying nothing uh, in his soliloquy, if I've remembered it correctly. Uh, how do we reconcile writing as a duty to memory with uh, Céline's um, uh, intensely dislikable protagonist, Ferdinand Bardemieu? Uh, who claims at one point that our great greatest depths are to be discovered in war and in illness. It seems as if each of these illusions um, brings up a rather uncomfortable kind of um, wartime or genocidal setting from the literary. Um, and that kind of interests me, um, given that it's there more strongly than any claim to Rwanda or to write about it. I want to suggest that such discomforting literary affiliations um, are part of Tadjo's point. Later in the book, she claims that Rwanda is universal, not because it makes a claim on everyone's moral sense, but because we are all potential perpetrators of genocide, which is an uncomfortable uh, thought to have to work with. Um, so she's working with the idea there that the perpetrators were ordinary people um, and that we are no kind of less ordinary than they are. And she's wanting to point out to readers that they might equally, in certain circumstances, have conducted similar um, you know, atrocities. So she writes, uh, and this is on your hand handout, that um, Rwanda and genocidal violence is constitutive. She says, Rwanda is inside me, in you, in all of us. Literature ventriloquizes voices to which none of us might wish to adhere, but which as readers nevertheless internalize. For example, Kurtz, Exterminate the Brutes. It's a, it's a voice that one is familiar with, even though one would not wish to identify with it. As readers, we're obliged to accommodate literary voices um, that we might otherwise prefer to repudiate. 
If Tadjo is right to suggest that all of us, any of us, are potentially capable of committing genocidal atrocities and participating in it, then perhaps we're being invited to entertain an analogy between our unacknowledged capacity to commit massacre and the unbidden thoughts and the unwelcome identifications of which all literary readers are composed. Tadjo's journey to Rwanda initially presents itself as travelogue. We're privy to the fact that the quickest route to uh, Rwanda from South Africa, where she's based when she sets out, uh, is Johannesburg uh, all the way to Paris, then connecting to Brussels, then back to Kigali. She loses her luggage, uh, she doesn't have a visa, her passport gets held by the Ministry of National uh, Security. In short, she destabilizes her own privileged status as an outsider looking in um, on Rwandan space. And once she's there, Tadjo implicates her reader in uh, genocide in a way we've become familiar with by positioning it as a form of species memory um, that we all have somewhere in our psyche. And the passage is on your handout that, that kind of gives us this. She says, we have to remember that time of endless night, return to that time of the great terror, the time when humans, face to face with their great destiny, I assume the great destiny was to become human, um, had not yet discovered their humanity. So for her, um, you know, untrammeled violence of the kind that genocide entails is part and parcel of our own species movement towards our fuller humanity that is not wholly forgotten um, in, in the mists of the past. Um, and as uncomfortable as that is, that seems to be what she's working with. Um, and I think the reason she's, she's working with that kind of universalizing of possible complicity is that it allows her not to have to go into ethnic divisions, Hutu, Tutsi, um, that were um, you know, evoked as a kind of alibi for not intervening when the, when the, um, the uh, genocide was taking place in 94. So she extends this idea to undercut the primacy of language in both testimony and narration, since for her, gesture and affect contain more truth than words do. She says the truth is revealed in people's eyes. Words have so little value, you need to get under people's skins, see what is inside. Here we have the idea of intellig intelligibility and understanding as a possible form of wounding getting underneath people's skins. It's a very invasive image, especially when words have already been discounted as a method for doing so. So language like this, and, and there are many examples of it throughout the book, uh, problematize the separability between um, genocidaire um, and uh, I guess genocide tourist or genocide traveler as, as Tadja's kind of positioning herself um, moving through, through the book. The tourist too is a symbolic participant in the crime, excavating people's insides um, by attempting to get under their skins without using words. In short, the banality of evil and its commonplace perpetration mean for, that for Tadjo, empathic understanding and violation become indistinguishable states. And that twinning of contrary impulses, of kind of diametrically opposite impulses, is, is a, a concerted feature of the, the travelogue sections in the book. Um, as she describes her visits to memorials uh, to the genocide, particularly in Yamata Church and in Tarama Church, um, she focuses on the unidentified who, at, I think, in Yamata remained unburied. Um, the unidentified, she tells us, and I think it's on your handout as well, um, are there to bear witness and will have no burial. Those who remain unburied do so uh, because the living will not desecrate their memory uh, by burying them anonymously. Uh, but the mere fact that they remain unburied means that these dead are screaming still um, to in, in outrage and, and to receive a human burial. 
So Tacho draws our attention to that paradox um, between ethical non-burial, so as not to desecrate the dead by, by burying them anonymous, anonymously, um, and um, unjust non-burial, which refuses to humanize the dead by according them a, um, a, a human burial. And the upshot of that paradox for Tadjo is that the dead abide, they persist, and they persist in a state of, of felt injustice. Um, she writes, but the stench of death has become unbearable. Particles from the massacre are floating in the air. The dead point an accusing finger at the living who is still making use of them. The dead want to return to the earth. They rise up in protest. They want to melt into the earth. So the protest of the dead um, is a protest um, that desires to dissipate um, the after effects of, um, of genocide. Here, patterned quite uncomfortably as the, as the stench of, of the physical remains that have not been buried. So if, if the stench of death is a form of physical memory, it's also implicitly repulsive memory that Tajo is kind of making us look at and focus on as, as readers. And that very visceral account, I think, is not intended to disrespect the dead. Um, but instead, I think that Tadjo is suspicious of all forms of memory, given that for her, one of the forms of memory that we all contain is that memory of, the, of kind of primal violence that she thinks we're all kind of capable of. So for this reason, she's also critical of the folkloric traditions of heroic violence um, within our Rwandan cultures and that she sees as being kind of stored up in the Rwandan landscape. Uh, she sees those traditions of, of heroic violence as providing recurrent foundational motivations uh, for genocidal acts in future. Um, and the passage that gives us this is number six on your handout. She says, who can say what makes up the memory of a whole nation? What images carpet its unconscious mind? Who can know what slaughter, hidden behind the centuries gone by, is even now sculpting the future of a nation? I want to move um, for a bit into a more straightforward account of some of the processes of transitional justice um, that Tadjo draws our attention to in the book. Um, and I've followed um, a, a very useful article by Megwalu and Loisides, uh, who write about um, the three institutions that have handled the aftermath of genocide and that have prosecuted uh, some of the, uh, the people accused of, of, of committing atrocities. So the genocide of 94 entailed the massacre of between 500,000 and 800,000 uh, mainly Tutsi victims. An estimated 19% of the adult male Hutu population, uh, or 360,000 men, uh, are estimated to have been uh, involved in committing atrocities. I don't have a stat for how many um, women are, are um, alleged to have been involved. The article doesn't contain that. The aftermath of genocide presents considerable challenges to the ideals of transitional justice. And three legal institutions have been involved in handling the aftermath. First, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda was established in 1995 uh, by UN Security Council Resolution 955 um, in order to prosecute acts of genocide, crimes against humanity, and other serious violations of international humanitarian law. Presiding in Arusha, the tribunal made the genocide internationally visible, of course, and mitigated the previous failure of the international community to intervene when the killings were, were taking place. Um, but the interna International Tribunal has been beset by challenges. Um, Ruti Titel has pointed out that where perpetrators were tried in absentia, the tribunal's power was limited to pronouncing a, a, upon wrongdoing and passing a notional sentence that might never get to be carried out. Um, even where a conviction was possible, it did not lead to the death sentence so far as I've been able to ascertain. By 2009, 
the tribunal had completed 50 trials with another 11 trials in progress and 14 um, accused still awaiting trial and detention. So a total of 75 cases um, in, in total. The second legal institution to handle the aftermath of the genocide was the Rwandan National Court System. Prosecutions began in 96, and three years later, 1999, 1,800 cases had been prosecuted. Unlike the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, the death sentence was passed on occasion. And that led to the perception, and it's one that Tadjo kind of records um, through the voice of one of her kind of informants in, in the travelogue sections of her book, it leads to the perception that justice for those who are high-ranking officers and officials who ordered the killings is somehow more lenient than that meted out to uh, lower-ranking uh, individuals, perpetrators, um, who um, carried out the orders. However, by 1999, 125,000 accused still languished in Rwandan prisons that were built to house only 50,000 people. Prosecutions at the rate of 600 per year would have taken over a century to process the outstanding trials. So there's a, a kind of bureaucratic lag, if you like, or impediment uh, in, in the machinations of justice that means that it faces logistical challenges. Um, so in January 2001, and in order to kind of, um, you know, uh, seek alternative forms of uh, transitional justice, the Rwandan government inaugurated, uh, brought back, if you like, the traditional community court system of the, I hope I pronounce it correctly, the Gasasa, um, in order to process the outstanding trials. And the Gasasa sets itself up um, across two phases. First, information gathering and then prosecution. Um, the information gathering phase is completed by December 2005. Um, prosecutions begin in August 2006. And five months later, by December 2006, 51,649 cases uh, had been processed. So much, much faster than your 1,800 cases in three years, much, much faster than your 75 cases, the International uh, Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. So it starts out processing cases at 10,000 a month. There have been claims that uh, by a year later, a million, as many as a million cases might have been put through the Gasasa system. So while the Gasasa system has been much more efficient than the International Criminal Tribunal uh, and the national courts, it was beset by numerous challenges and, and shortcomings. Firstly, in their customary law form, the Gasasa courts never traditionally try, tried criminal cases. Um, they tried minor civil cases, from what I've been able to ascertain. Secondly, Gasasas never traditionally imposed prison sentences. Uh, in their original form, they were designed to integrate offenders back into the community and to reharmonize social relations. So they're restorative instead of administering punishment. Thirdly, in their recent incarnation, Gasasas relied upon untrained judges, untrained prosecutors, juries, defense teams, uh, and they've been subject to claims of corruption, of manipulation, of intimidation, and of breaches of due process. And if you're processing 10,000 trials a month, questions of whether all the, um, the I's have been dotted and the T's been crossed uh, naturally arise. Moreover, they've been accused of being a government political instrument by some, trying Hutu accused while ignoring accusations against Tutsi perpetrators among the Rwandan Popular Front. And, and that claim is made by one of the informants in uh, Tadjo's book as well. Tadjo comments on the Gasasas, and her question is an interesting one. She doesn't sort of lock down a perspective on them, but she just raises questions that uh, means that, that um, as we pursue our answers, we might want to be critical, um, respectfully critical, I guess, of their operations. She writes, the Gasasa means a return to, to traditional justice. How did the ancestors judge, she asks? How did they mete out punishment? 
Traditional customs are being revived in the faces of this emergency. Solutions for the present must be sought in the past. Did the ancestors know the crime of genocide? So her questioning of the foundations of the Gassasa system is quite pointed because she's no doubt aware of the widespread feelings um, uh, that the, neither the Gassasas nor the national courts nor the International Criminal Tribunal um, are, um, are capable, perhaps, of dealing with um, as many as 800,000 um, you know, murders, um, of, of dealing with 360,000 possible uh, perpetrators. Because criminal prosecutions are adversarial, they risk reopening old political conflicts and reawakening violent pol political impulses. So Tajo um, is, is interested in, is engaged with, um, gives voice to some of the critical accounts of how transitional justice is working in the aftermath of the genocide. Um, but she's also, I think, um, deliberately inserting fictional moves in those representations. And what I want to move on to think about is how literature's working in relation to this tricky legal context and also to think a little bit about what literature might be able to do that perhaps the law court is not able to do. Um, so to enter into that discussion, um, I thought we'd look at a section called um, The Lawyer from uh, Kigali. Um, and it's part of it is excerpted, hopefully, um, as number eight on your handout. So she describes in a section called The Lawyer from Kigali, uh, an unnamed lawyer uh, who comes from another African country. So we immediately have a kind of double structure of origination, sort of splitting the identity of this figure. He's from, from Kigali, but originally from another country as well. Um, and that destabilizes the boundary again between outsider and insider, which seems to be one of her key moves throughout um, the, the, the book. So the lawyer's views on the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, which is what he begins with, and then the Rwandan national court system, which is what he moves on to in the passage, are imparted via quite a curious formulation. You feel that what he would like to say is, they have all the time in the world and can afford to have lofty sentiments about their work. Meanwhile, however, Rwandan prisoners are rotting in the cells of rundown and overcrowded prisons. 130,000 prisoners, even the United States, does not have so many. If you calculate that 1,000 prisoners maximum can be tried in a year, how many years are we looking at? So there's a spiral of attribution as she introduces this voice. We have that strange formulation, you feel that what he would like to say is. Um, so in other words, we have a, a you, an implied reader, us, um, who has opinions that once examined revert back to the female narrator um, and disguised as a he, the lawyer from Kigali. And those sorts of plays of position um, are something that work throughout the book. There's a, another section where she has a, has a, has a section called The Writer, um, and the writer wants to exorcise Rwanda, which we know is what Tadjo sets out saying she wants to do at the introduction of the book. So it's as if she kind of sets up an opinion um, or uh, as makes a statement and then revisits it in a later section and remakes it via another position or via another speaker. So we have a process of kind of incremental recombination going on in the book. These fragments recombine elements of what's gone on um, earlier in the book. And in that sense, the book itself is kind of transitioning its own structures as it proceeds and is transitioning our reading and, and reading consciousness with it. I want to think a little bit about what Tadjo's literary text um, offers that perhaps justice um, in its, in its um, institutionalized form cannot. 
I think that she's um, interested in the idea of what justice might mean for the dead. Of course, the, um, the bulk of the victims of the genocide aren't with us. Um, and she's got this remarkable section um, called In Kigali, they tell the following story, which I won't read, I'll simply summarize for you. Um, it's about a, a woman who, whose son is killed by her neighbor um, during the genocide. And then after the genocide, she falls ill. The neighbor is a nurse by profession and comes to um, administer care and healing to her. Um, and she falls in love with him and gives herself to him. Um, and her community is very critical, saying, you know, why would you um, be, you know, um, in love with this man who has killed your own son? And she says, well, you know, I've been very ill since the genocide. Um, and I, it's even possible I have AIDS. I'm sharing AIDS with this man. Uh, which of you would have shared this AIDS with me? Um, and then what Tadjo does is to say, is to kind of problematize um, the possibilities that arise from that story. She says, um, for example, are these people still together? Has the man been taken by the community and put in prison uh, to wait trial? Um, does the man know that she has AIDS? And then she even says, well, is the story itself designed to prevent inter-ethnic marriages? Is, is it being instrumentally used, a story of reconciliation, used to warn people off um, marrying across ethnic lines? So what she does in that story, I think, is to use the possibility of story without closing down or adjudicating as a way of thinking about how reconciliation can happen um, and how provisional it is in contexts such as that. And she then moves into her s fictional sections in the middle of the book, and the first of them is called The Wrath of the Dead, um, where the dead, being unburied, are still angry and are angry at having their lives cut short. Um, and the resolution that's offered to the dead, a soothsayer comes in and, and his advice to the living is that they should fulfill all of the potential in their lives that was denied to the dead. So a kind of reparation to the dead by living your life and continuing and going on uh, to your fullest possible potential. So the dead are not conventionally legal subjects. They're not persons in a legal sense. They, they can't really hold rights and responsibilities in the same way as the living can. They can't be summoned to appear before a court of law. Uh, but Tadjo's interested in what the idea of justice might mean for them um, and what they might want of us um, in, in that section. And she then moves on to two further sections. One is called His Voice, where um, a woman is called up by a man whose voice sounds remarkably similar to her husband, and her husband's committed suicide. And the reason he's committed suicide is he's about to be arrested because he killed uh, the family of a man called Nkuranya. So she goes to meet um, this, this person who's called her, uh, whose voice sounds like her husband's. Um, and eventually, at the end of the story, we realize it's Nkuranya himself who has called her and who shares a voice that sounds the same as her husband's voice does. So we have an idea of kind of the dead, Roman's voice, um, and the living, Nkuranya's voice, being something shared, being something reconciled, um, as a kind of um, a way of staging story um, in the middle of the book. So what we have, I think, um, in uh, Tadjo's account is that she voices some of the practical insufficiencies of the transitional, uh, various forms of transitional justice um, and institutions um, that have attempted to work with the aftermath of a very wide-scale um, genocide. Um, she's widening the categories of involvement and complicity in atrocity, and very uncomfortably, uh, the ambit of complicity unmistakably includes us as readers um, and, and us as a species. Moreover, she uses the possibilities of fiction to model the idea um, of reparation for the dead in the section called The Wrath of the Dead. And she thinks about how the possibilities of fiction might allow for a retroactive reading of justice 
uh, via genocide. And she draws attentions to acts of reconciliation that risk exonerating perpetrators, as for example in that um, there is a story they tell in Kigali. Tadjo suggests that the instability of story and the vexed truth status of fiction are uniquely comparable to genocidal aftermaths. Um, you know, there's the obvious challenge of gathering evidence um, across 800,000 cases. The obvious challenge of uh, prosecuting fairly 360,000 uh, accused. And fiction with its instability um, and with its openness to possibility seems to approximate um, th those basic conditions um, of, of the creation of narrative. Given Tadjo's claim that we're all possible perpetrators in theory, she's using fiction to transition us from ignorant outsiders uh, via her travelogue into something like conscious insiders uh, of um, insiders in complicity uh, with the events of 94. Since the narratives in the shadow of Imana develop within the ambit of influence of their immediate predecessors, Tadjo's second visit to Rwanda um, becomes visible as an incremental recombination of the elements of the first visit. Structurally then, the shadow of Imana models transition and reconciles itself to its own destabilized and disrupted foundations. And literature by implication offers its readers a performative model of transition in which reconciliation with truth might just about be possible. <laughs>